Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to After the Jag Corps, navigating your career progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the Jag Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Just wanted to make a few comments before we turn to today's podcast. My practice has been to play these podcasts mostly in the order that I record them. This past Saturday, I got a text from a retired Marine judge advocate who just retired from the Corps. We went through four block and he came online and said, hey, I just want to let you know I just received an offer and you know, I found your podcast helpful to getting that. And I'm really excited for him. And I really wanted to capture his emotion and talk about this as it was happening or just almost as soon as it happened. So today's podcast, I'm surging ahead of the other four or five or six I have in there to capture the emotion. The second thing is Thomas has agreed to allow me to do this unedited because I have time constraints. And also I've been encouraged by a couple others to start letting these things go a little bit longer. So ladies and gentlemen, Major Thomas Eibel, United States Marine Corps, retired and now starting his next chapter of his career progression. Today on the podcast, we are talking to Thomas Eibel. Thomas just transitioned from the United States Marine Corps Judge Advocate to, he's going to tell you about it. Thomas and I were actually in the same four-block cohort that ended in December, and Thomas starts work on Tuesday. So Thomas, congratulations, and welcome to the podcast. Thank yeah, thank you for having me. I am stunned and amazed to be amongst the August company that, that has come before me on here. Well, you are now a mentor because you have done it. And and I really want to talk to you. So let's go back, Thomas. How many years have you served in the Corps? So I, I retired at 20. At 20. 20, so, you know, 20 and change. Yeah, but 20 years served. So you're in your somewhere in your 40s. I'll be 43 a week from Saturday. Just talk to us about your yeah. experience. That's you. You take it where you want. Yes, I'll be candid. The Marine Corps did not think that I had the potential to serve at the rank of lieutenant colonel. And so that I could see the light at the end of the tunnel. And it was a combination of, of exit ramp and the train that was going to push me out of service. So because I was prior enlisted in the reserve side and because I was a flip guy, so I flipped over from being a logistician to being a lawyer, my time calculus was a little bit different. And so when that happens, when you don't get when you get passed for promotion in the Marine Corps, you get an email saying, hey, on this day, you will hit 20 and you need to be doing something else. So I knew what my date was going to be. And I kind of did the backwards planning from there. What was I going to do to put myself in a position of success on that day? And for me, that day, the day the Marine Corps says you stop was 31 December 2022. And so I still have to do what we call the Appendix J, the application for retirement. I did that in the spring of 2022 and then kind of had laid out to my chain of command, here's how I see Skillbridge going. Here's kind of where I see my terminal leave. Here's where I see my ceremony. 
And I was incredibly fortunate to have very supportive leadership that was open and willing to give me all the opportunities to do things that I needed to do to, to get to the place where I hope to end up now. So, Thomas, you did a skill bridge. I did. What did you do with the skill bridge? Tell us about that. So I did skill bridge through the Hiring Our Heroes program run by the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, they do what they call cohorts and they do three a year and they run them kind of all over the country. So here in the National Capital Region is a big one because there's a lot of uh, military personnel in the National Capital Region. And so what I was looking to do was to find an opportunity to be an in-house attorney at a company. Because I had decided kind of early on that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an in-house counsel somewhere or maybe go back to work for the government. But I was primarily targeting being an in-house counsel. I went into it looking for that opportunity. I found that opportunity with a small DOD contractor because I wanted to see what is it like to kind of practice in that area of law. Because everybody just tells you, we as, I spend a lot of time as a staff judge advocate. And when as staff judge advocates, we talk to other attorneys, we frequently make the comparison to say we are in-house counsel to the senior executives, to the leaders of these various organizations that we're advising. How accurate is that? So I think it's probably in the like 60 to 65% realm, just because there are things that are kind of unique to the military context that don't come up on the civilian side. We're not on SkillBridge. So the hiring her program is 12 weeks. It did for me what I wanted to do, which was give me confidence that I can do this work in a civilian setting. I can advise senior executives. I can go into areas of law that I may not have ever worked in before, like commercial real estate, for example. And I can give advice. I can read the materials. I can spin up quickly. And I think one of the skills that we have as a job because that we frequently don't credit ourselves with is because we switch jobs at minimum every couple of years. Sometimes you switch jobs in the middle of a tour. So you might switch at the 18-month mark, 24-month mark. And that you're used to going into new areas of law, into new fields, new organizations, and spinning up rapidly. You are used to kind of the, like, as things are happening, you are part of making it happen. And so that translates, and that translated for me. And so I got a job offer coming out of SkillBridge. It was not what I wanted it to be. And so I kept looking and I kept working. And I was frank with them about that because at the end of my SkillBridge, I had not yet completed all the kind of like out-processing things mm -hmm. that I had to do to include like the VA medical. I had not had my retirement ceremony yet because I started SkillBridge in early September. And like I said, I, my last day on active duty was the 31st of December. So I was inside the 180 day window, but I had a block of time on the backside. And I did that on purpose because I wanted to come out of SkillBridge and then kind of be in a position to think about and to analyze what are the next steps how am I going to take advantage of these next steps? How am I going to take advantage of the information that I've gained from SkillBridge and leverage it going forward? I thought you had to burn all your terminal leave, do everything, and that was at the very last of that. Is that not necessarily the case? No. So the DOD instruction that says within the last 180 days of your time on active duty, you can be released with the concurrence of your chain of command by your local commander, usually the 06 level, to go off and do SkillBridge. And there's a variety of organizations that run SkillBridge, like I talked about, I did through Hiring Our Heroes. Or you can just do it directly, kind of one-on-one -on -one with the, the company. There's organizational organ opportunities, like Onward to Opportunity is one where you can go get certified in some of these cyber things, project management. So they're not all... You know, there's like ones for truck driving, all kinds of stuff. They're not all you going and working in the civilian industry. A fellow Marine judge advocate who reached out to a company one-on-one, -on -one, got approved to do SkillBridge with them, went up to New York, did the SkillBridge. There was no other like kind of oversight involved. So there's a variety of ways to do it. 
And a lot of it is always going to depend on what is the situation of your command kind of in the moment. Are they, especially for judge advocates, because they tend to be one of one or one of two. Can they let you go? Where are they in your replacement? And so I was fortunate, again, that my chain of command was, was absolutely willing to, to support me and to let me go. A lot of it is going to depend kind of on like, are there local policies on how they manage? Like once you walk out the door for Skillbridge, do they not want you to come back? And that was, that was not my experience. I, my boss told me when I left to go on Skillbridge, he's like, hey, if it's terrible and you don't like it, just come back to work. I was very fortunate in that way, but there is no requirement in the in the DOD policy. And for the Marine Corps, there's no requirement in the Marine Corps' Skillbridge policy that you kind of like burn it down and then go out the door. The, the key Just in the 180 days. In the 180-day window. That's something I've been thinking about to spin up too. We go to jobs where you are drinking from a fire hose and you absolutely, absolutely. know nothing about it. And the question I've been really looking at lately is why are we afraid when it comes to that transition into the civilian world that we lack confidence? And the only thing I can come up with is, is that wearing the uniform, we sort of have a safety net because we're already part of that culture. And now it's just a matter of getting in and military colleagues tend to understand that and be supportive. And I don't have a better explanation of that other than that we're already part of the culture and we're moving into another culture. So I do think that's part of it. Part of it is we talk about, I'm going over here and taking a new job. What we're actually doing is we're moving billets. We're moving assignments. And so like I leave Camp Pendleton as a United States Marine and I show up at Quantico and I'm still a United States Marine and I have a built-in cachet in this organization. I know a lot of people in this organization because the Marine Corps Officer Corps is but so big. I know a lot of these people. These people know me. I show up wearing the uniform with all my flair on it. That gives me instant credibility. My boss knows my old boss. And so the network effect inside the organization is real. But I think another part, kind of an indirect way of thinking about this that I thought about a lot during my job search is job postings for attorneys are primarily written aimed at the audience of senior associates moving out of law firms into the in-house counsel world. Like when we're talking specifically about in-house counsel world, which is what I was focusing on. Occasionally they're written for like lateral movers between law firms. I graduated law school 10 years ago, but I was not aware that that's something people did a lot. That's apparently something that people do an awful lot of. During this process, I was contacted a couple of times by recruiters that work on kind of moving lawyers between law firms. And they figured out that I was not in the population of human beings that they were interested in. And so I think a lot of times we read the John postings and because they're not written for us and because the person who wrote them is not familiar with us. When I say us, I mean judge advocate. All associates at most firms kind of do the same thing. They show up, they do a lot of research work, they do a lot of writing, they do a lot of support of the partners, kind of do the grunt work of the, the, the defense or whatever it is that their firm is working on. And it's all very similar, no matter which three names on the front of the law firm. But what we do is incredibly different. What the experience of a, even a one-term judge advocate is very different from somebody who spent three years in a law firm. And so I think there's a struggle there of you got to say, hey, you wrote this combination of words here. And what I have lines up with what's behind that. I can do the job that's behind that. But we need to push my experience through this screen that is this job posting that you have created. And that can frequently, I think, be a struggle because you'll read the job posting and you'll be like, I don't know what these words mean. I don't know what this combination of sentences mean. And unless you overcome that hurdle, I think sometimes we turn ourselves off. We take ourselves out of running. You know, you mentioned earlier, we were in the same four block cohort. One of the things I took away from four block, we talked a lot about building your internal advocates. 
one of my key leverage things was you have to really leverage LinkedIn and LinkedIn Premium specifically as you're preparing to transition to kind of network these organizations, find out who posted that job, find that person, contact that person, tell them who you are. And then I would always start with like, hey, I'm recruiting job advocate slash lawyer, 10 years of legal experience. And I saw you posted this job and I'd be really interested in how my experience in compliance, you know, regulatory litigation matches to this. And most of them were incredibly gracious with their time. And I would have conversations with them and uh, many of them turned into interviews and some of them kind of turned into the process. They turned into a lot of projections. But you, you have to kind of get over that hurdle and you have to get over that hurdle by kind of doing the entry level work. And I think it requires a little bit more work from us to reach out to them and be like, I am a lawyer. I have experience. I think I can do this job for you and I think I can do it well. And you have to say it with, with confidence and then generate them as an internal ally. I was successful in doing that. I was successful in generating internal allies that assisted me. And I'll mention here briefly now, like we talked about four block, but I do think that there's a tremendous value in kind of identifying all the resources that you think are appropriate for you and taking advantage of them. I think four block was one. I mentioned hiring our heroes through whom I did Skillbridge. That's another one that worked out really well for me. Uh, Candor full in preparing for interviews. And then American Corporate Partnerships, ACP, in getting a mentor because you had Kelly Hope on your podcast. And Kelly mentioned that she was interviewed by a former Marine who then gave her the opportunity at T-Mobile. Well, that former Marine is Justin, who through ACP, randomly, I got paired with as my mentor. Justin, you know, the Marine Corps judge advocate, made the transition into the Department of Justice and then into the civilian sector. So he has a tremendous amount of experience in this and has been this incredible resource and sounding board to me as I'm preparing for interviews and like talking through kind of what do these job descriptions mean? How do I prepare for it? What should I be reading? And he and he would frequently tell me straight up, like, go read this case, go read these mm-hmm. materials. So you already alluded to the fact that you got, you know, rejections, which tells me that you applied to more than one. It wasn't, oh yeah, it wasn't the first card it hit, success was done. <laughs> so tell me about when did you start applying? Ballpark me how many you applied to yeah. and how you got to the offer at T Mobile. Yeah. And baseball batting 300 gets you in the Hall of Fame. So I, I occasionally describe this as you only have to make one shot to kind of win the car at the end, right? If you're doing half-course basketball shopping. So I started applying for jobs over the summer, probably back in, I, I think I sent my very first application out like in May. And I sequenced it where I did applications for employment in the federal government first. So all the jobs, the, the job series for attorneys in the federal government is 0905. So USA Jobs pulled the 0905s in the D.C. area, started applying. I did that because federal hiring takes a tremendous amount of time, right? Mm-hmm. Even if they go through this process of referring and like, it's going to take months and months and months, sometimes years, right? We, we, all of us who are in uniform have been on the on the opposite end of that, where there's a civilian employee who leaves and then that desk is just kind of there and empty and open for a solar year before a new person gets in there. So I started that first. And also I thought there was value in kind of like, because I didn't actually really want to work for federal government, but I thought it was a safe opportunity. Like it gives you reps in preparing the resume. And then in June and July, I started applying for jobs in industry. And I applied to over 200 jobs. When you talk to people that are transitioning, you know, both in our four block cohort and like I've gone back and done some mentoring for the people that are India hiring our heroes from them now. People talk a lot about how they don't enjoy interviewing. And I actually love interviewing because I'm a, I'm a people person. I love getting interviewed because to me, I was always of the opinion. If I jump the hurdle, if I get into the interview process, if you put me... I always in my mind thought in a room, but it ended up 
primarily being over Zoom. I had one in-person interview. If I'm on Zoom with you and I'm having a conversation, I believe in my advocacy skills as an attorney that you will walk away from that thinking like, I want Thomas on my team. Thomas knows what he's doing. He'll, he'll be good for you. The part I didn't enjoy was the tailoring of the resume. Because I think if you read 40, 50 job postings for attorneys, they all start to sound the same. They're all kind of saying the same thing. They'll be like, looking for an attorney. And it'll say, from a top tier law firm, slash in-house Fortune 100 company, sometimes it'll be comma government, but frequently it won't say government. Then it'll say a range. Sometimes it's three to five, sometimes it's seven to 10, but it'll say a number of years of experience that you're supposed to have. Then it'll say like some area of law, commercial real estate, transactions, privacy. And then it'll list like five things, one of which will say cross-functional. And then you're just kind of looking at it and you're thinking, what are the words that I'm going to draw out of this? Other than like the area of law and the years that I'm going to put on my resume where I'm tailoring and crafting this thing. So that was the part that I did struggle with. I struggled with kind of making each resume unique to each job because I was like, all these job posts are the same. And so I was going that, through that during the Hiring Our Heroes process. And I, I got a couple different offers for opportunities to do SkillBridge. Here in the DC area, there's this tremendous body of consulting operations. And so I had some opportunities to, to do that as a consultant, but that's not what I wanted to do. So I, I was looking very specifically for an illegal opportunity, which I didn't found. And I was continuously kind of refining that resume on what that looks like and how we approach that. And Fullbach was very helpful with that. Because then when I came out of this, the internship, when I came out of the Skillbridge program, then I could widen my aperture a little bit because I was like, okay, I can do these other things. And I could apply to, I feel like I applied to more jobs in the back end of that because I felt more confidence in myself. And so uh, I interviewed with, with several places. I got job offers from several places. And I interviewed with T-Mobile for a position and was rejected. But I talked earlier about internal advocates, and I was incredibly fortunate because you know, I mentioned Kelly Hoke. She was one of those internal advocates. Kelly reached out to me after I was turned down by T-Mobile and said, hey, I'm going to see if there's other opportunities here, and I'll let you know. And there was another opportunity, and I applied for it, and I went through the interview cycle again. And we're being candid here. Because I had already interviewed with T-Mobile and been rejected, on my second go-around, I was not as confident as on the first time. Right. The first time I approach a company and they interviewed me, I feel great because these people have never met me and I'm putting my best foot forward. But I felt like I'd put my best foot forward and it had not worked. So now I was questioning myself and I was talking a lot to my mentors about kind of what else can I do? And one of the things somebody told me is you don't ever know who else is out there in some of these areas of law, especially when you're trying as a judge advocate, make the jump into an area of law you have not worked in before. There may be somebody who's coming out of a law firm, and that's all they've done for four years, and they have a deep understanding of this. And we, as judge advocates, frequently say, you have you know, X years of experience in doing you know, whatever, random judge advocate thing, ethic, military personnel employment law, officer misconduct. That doesn't come up a lot in the civilian world. It's something we do. Criminal litigation. But frequently, that is something we do 30% of the time, 40% of the time, because there's all this other stuff, especially as SJAs. You're actually doing like eight things. You're not doing any one of them 100% of the time. Whereas law firm attorneys do one or two things all the time for like 10,000 hours a year, right? Because they're building all these insane hours. And so because we as a judge have to know that, you don't know what you're competing with. And so you just have to put your best foot forward in, in kind of all that soft skill stuff. And I don't say stuff to be dismissive because I think it's important, right? The adaptability. The humility, the ability to come in and learn, the ability to come in and be a part of a team, the fact that you're used to giving advice. 
the fact you're used to speaking to senior leaders, right? I've had multiple roles of advising general officers. I had a role where I was, you, know, you obviously maybe did that because I worked at Code 10, which is the International Operational Law Branch for your office of the Judge Advocate General, where I was giving operational legal advice to the Judge Advocate General of the United States Navy, who had an operational law background. Like he knew what he was doing, but I was there doing the backstop and doing the individual research into the cases. And so I have confidence in, in talking to senior leaders. And so you're selling that stuff while simultaneously saying, listen, I've been reading up on this. I found LinkedIn to be very helpful there because there's LinkedIn learning courses. So before I'd go on an interview, I would look up courses in that area of law and I, I would take them and I'd prepare myself and I'd read up and I, I, I would do all the things so I could demonstrate, hey, I can learn about this. I've learned about this first interview. If you hire me, I will learn even more. How did you get connected with Kelly? She was part of my hiring panel. So she interviewed me. And in the interview, as we were talking, we discovered we knew the same people. You obviously have Paisal on, uh, we're at Microsoft now, who's been a tremendous mentor to me. I was fortunate to meet him at the Veteran Career Legal Fair. And something he said, and something she has said, is when a judge advocate enters an organization and then is successful, they create the opportunity for other judge advocates to come in behind them. When I was building my internal networks in, in, in another company, I reached out to a recruiter at, at a financial organization. My approach was, hey, I see you have this job posting for an attorney. It's all about financial stuff, none of which I have any idea about. But my question to her was, how do you hire attorneys? What do you think about? What are the things you consider? I was not doing that to try to create an opportunity at that company. I was doing that to, to learn from her so I could apply that somewhere else. But they had never hired a judge advocate. They didn't have a lot of veterans in the organization because it's hard for veterans to kind of break into finance that way. But she talked to me. She's very gracious with her time. And then she's like, hey, you know, you're a great guy. I think she talked to our deputy general counsel. I think he'd love to meet you. So I talked to him. I asked him the same question. Say, hey, how do you pick the lawyers you're going to hire? What are the things you look for? Kind of as you look at my resume, what are you, the things you think I should be focusing on as I'm talking to other organizations? And I'm very thankful to him and very complimentary of him giving me his time and everything. And then a couple of days later, the recruiter I've been talking to shot me an email. Said, hey, he loved you and we'd like to interview you for a job. During that interview process, I kept saying, I kept being very honest with everybody interviewed with. Like, I know nothing about financial regulation. I, I have no idea. But I've been reading, and I'll learn about it. And I, I read up on SEC rulemaking, and I read up on FINRA, like FINRA licenses and regulations and all that stuff. And it turned into an offer, kind of out of thin air. And I think that is the, if there's never been a judge advocate, they don't know what they're buying. And so you have to go in there and convince them, like, I'm a real lawyer. I can do real lawyer things. I have real attorney skills. And if you give me this opportunity, I will demonstrate to you the value that I can bring to your organization. And in that moment, they saw the value and, and they made me an offer. Now, T-Mobile has Judge Advocates. They, over time, hired multiple Judge Advocates. T-Mobile is one of these companies that has made the commitment to hire 10,000 veterans. They were recently recognized as uh, one of the most just companies in America. Their CEO was recently recognized as uh, one of the top business leaders in America. So I think both in size, because obviously much bigger, in experience, they have this familiarity with the United States government, strong familiarity with the military, and therefore we're much more comfortable. Like, yeah, we'll bring in this guy. He may not have all the skills that we normally would look for, but we can absolutely train him up. We know what we're buying here, and we're going to give him this opportunity. Let me back up a little bit. You applied for federal jobs first. Did you have anybody come back to you on the federal side? So I, I got a couple of emails where you, know, you get an email initially that says you've been referred. or preferred, yeah. yeah. Right. And then I, after that stage, I had a couple slide-out rejections. I was no longer being considered. 
There was some months of radio silence in between there. And then there were two that came back after I'd already accepted T-Mobile offer and said, we'd like to interview you. And so I politely declined. <laughs> yeah. How different was it writing resumes for federal jobs versus what you're doing on the civilian side? I've never done it, but I've heard yeah. that on the federal side, you're putting a lot in. We're on the civilian side. You're trying to keep it brief and trying to get them interested enough in that eight seconds. I think I have come to believe that resume writing is a lot like what, you know what we as military officers call fitness report writing or you know officer evaluation report writing. You know whatever the various branches call it. Everybody believes that the way they do it is the best way because they have been successful doing it that way. The federal resume is a thing. It's defined body of work that can run in the range of four to 12 pages, kind of depending on how long your career is and all the various things you put in it. Because you're supposed to basically like list 10-year job history where you list each individual billet. How many hours did you work per week in that billet? What were you paid? What was the address of that place and the phone number and kind of like the job description underneath it? And if you do that for every one of them, it gets super long. And then it talks about you're supposed to list like your Microsoft skills at the end and various systems you've worked in. Like if you're somebody, I'm just going to use this as an example. If you were applying for an operational advisor gig at CENTCOM and you'd have worked on JWIX before, you would list JWIX as like a skill somewhere, right? And so that all that and like education and all the awards, that makes it very long. But I've spoken to several federal attorneys in kind of various places, primarily in places I'm talking outside the Department of Justice and the Department of Defense. I think the Department of Justice is a little bit different because it's so attorney heavy. And then DOD is its own special thing, as it is in all things. And so in some of those places, they would say, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't do all that. You do this like kind of reduced federal resume. It's like exists somewhere on the line between a civilian resume and a federal resume, but it's closer to the civilian resume. And then it's generally only like two pages and kind of lists out the relevant legal experience. And then obviously the civilian resume is very much like telling the the screener, the recruiter, whoever's going to actually review this thing, the things they want to see so that they will consider your resume for the hiring manager. It is a very like targeted exercise. That's where the tailoring comes in. Because frequently these people are not attorneys. The people, the recruiters, the, the kind of the, the people bringing somebody in are not lawyers. They have been told by a lawyer, the hiring manager, this is what I need. And they wrote it down as they were talking. And then they went to LinkedIn or whatever and typed it in. And there it is. And so now you have to meet that. You have to like check the boxes. You have to jump through the hoops so that the recruiter will advance you to the hiring manager so you can have the actual conversation. That's why I described that as like, to me, that was the big hurdle. Right. Getting to the interview by clearing this hurdle of having your resume considered is, to me, the big jump. Because once you get there and you're having the conversation, then I think you're in a much better position to, to do all that, that evaluatory stuff. They're evaluating you to see if they want to hire you and you're evaluating them. Do I want to work for this human being? What do I know about this company? What do I know about this culture? Is this kind of work I want to do? You shared with me both here and then in a text or email exchange the, the networking aspect of this, uh, because as you said, you got rejected by T-Mobile and Kelly reaches out to you. And, you know, what I've kind of learned from talking to people is you don't know where that offer is going to come from. So you've got to go through all these. When did you start getting the feeling that T-Mobile was going to turn into an offer? 
so as we keep playing like people we know so one i, I was going through the interviewing rounds and, and like i mentioned i was talking to my mentor as we we're going and, and i got the interview with, with a senior vice president for legal affairs and i told him this and he's like that's a good sign that means they're probably down to one or two and i'm like well they said it was down to one or two last time but in that interview i felt good because the interview like it went well. I, I came out of it feeling very positive. And around that same time, I got another offer. And I went back to my mentor and I said, how do I, how do I handle this? So I really want to work for T-Mobile. I, 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 you know, everybody I talked to at T-Mobile was a person I wanted to work with. Everybody that interviewed me, I was like, I want to work with them or I want to work for them. These are great people. These are great attorneys. Like this is the kind of work I want to do. And he said, just email the recruiter and say, I have a job offer, but I'd really like to work for you guys. Are you going to make me a job offer? This is not something I've done before, right? This is not a conversation I've ever had to have with anybody. Right. So I probably wildly overthought that email. I, you know, in, in good lawyer fashion, I wrote it like 12 times and deleted it and edited it. And then it was too long. And I was like, now it's too short. And you know, round and round and round. And eventually I sent it. I, I got a phone call. Saying yes, we would like to make you an offer. I think we're going to have it together by the end of the day today. Is that okay? And I said, yeah, that's fine. Again, a, a reality of these large companies is the people I interviewed with are, I'm in Northern Virginia. Many of them were in places west of where we are. The, the person who ended up making the decision was on the West Coast. So that decision, end of the day for them, was later than it was here. So I ended up getting a call that night as I was walking the dog, which was great. I was super excited. It was what I wanted out of the process. Now, I will say, I ended up in a place that I wanted to be. I had an offer from a place I really wanted to work. It was a great and phenomenal offer. I simultaneously had offers from other places. So I was able to compare and contrast. What I had not expected was that meant I had to tell places no. When you're kind of going into this, you're just like, I want people to offer me a job, and then I'm going to take the best possible job, and then I'm going to have the best possible job, and then I move forward, and everything's great. But like I just described, I'd engaged with this, this recruiter and this associate general counsel at another company, and they'd been incredibly generous at the time, and they'd been very gracious and offering me mentorship and everything, and it, it turned into a job offer. And now I have to call them back and say, no you thanks. guys are great, and it was awesome. I'm not going to come work for you. And again, I probably wildly overthought this in preparing myself for it. I rehearsed the conversation in my mind. I thought I was going to say, but I was also telling myself, like, yes, stay strong. I came back down. Not realizing that this lady is a professional recruiter. Like, this is what she does for a living. Like, people have told her no, like, probably 100 times that week. Probably, you know, that's probably overstating it. But, like, she makes job offers to people in the financial world that are looking to move between companies. That means they're probably considering multiple offers. And some of them say yes, and some of them say no. And people leave her company all the time. That's why she's recruiting, because she needs to bring in new people. But I had obviously never done that. The first time I ever left the job was when I retired from Marine Corps. So I've done in my adult life. You know, and, and my wife was kind of coaching me through it. And she's like, this happens all the time. You know, she's a supervisor in, in her GS position. So people, her team leads have left and people that work for her have left. And she's like, yeah, it's fine. That happens all the time. But it was a, it was a big deal to me. Yeah. It was the first time I had done it. And, it, and I described it in talking to a friend very similar to the first time walking into, into a guilty dive, right? Into a guilty plea. As a, you know, I, I did all my time in, in trial as a prosecutor. I... I'm walking in, unless this goes horrifically wrong, like I'm going to win, right? Because you're yeah. going to plead guilty and then we're going to kind of do some sentencing stuff and then like, boom, 
you know, I represent the United States government and we have achieved justice. But you're still nervous the first time you do it. And it was the same thing here. I was incredibly nervous. That's what it felt like. I, I, you know, I felt like I had to be, make, be persuasive about it. It turns out I, I didn't have to be. And, and she was great about it. The thing that surprised me was frequently those companies ask, like, will, will you share the details of the offer? And you have a conversation with them. And then they ask for a couple of hours to see if they can do something. And then they come back and you, know, you have another conversation and then you move on. Is this sort of like guys committing to college now that you could accept an offer and then they come back at you and that you could switch, you know, like guys say, I'm going to commit to Notre Dame. And then when it comes time to yeah. sign the paperwork, ah, I'm going to go over to USC or whatnot. I think as attorneys, we are evaluators and advisors on risk, right? We solve complex legal problems for our clients and risk is one of those kind of like undefined problems that we solve. Employment in the United States in the civilian sector is primarily at will. And so all the job offers I received were at will employment. And so that means that you can accept the job offer. And, you know, I, I've described it frequently as like, it's kind of like getting orders. Like I have a job offer. I've accepted the job offer. I've done all the paperwork to everything except the job offer. But orders can change. To include, they could just call me. Like my phone could ring right now. And they'd be like, thanks, but no thanks. You, you go work there. Through, you know, I mean, we, everybody's watching news. You know, I was networking a lot of Salesforce. A lot of people I network with at Salesforce don't work at Salesforce anymore. These are the realities of life. And so I think that could you accept an offer and then rescind that acceptance? I think the answer is yes. I think you have to be very deliberate and careful in doing so because you don't want to leave a bad taste in your mouth. You want to be honest, transparent, and forthright. And you got to be clear on kind of like the damage that may do to the network. because. Wherever you are accepting the offer may not work out. And if a year from now you are looking for a job again, uh, an off-sighted stat that is probably real, that many veterans change jobs within the first year or shortly after the first year after coming out of service. And I think that there's a couple drivers of that. It's like you may think you want to do a certain type of work and you actually get to do it. And you're like, oh, this is not what I thought it was. You may be in a place and then you're like, no, I'd actually would like, you know, would like to move, you, you, any number of reasons why. But some of them may also be that you don't last at the organization that you have become a part of. Now, part of what attracted me to T-Mobile is in doing my research and reviewing the LinkedIn. Like, I see a lot of people that have had some amount of longevity. You know, again, I'm in the Northern Virginia area. I would like to stay in the Northern Virginia area until my children are out of school. I did not particularly enjoy looking for a job, so I was looking for an opportunity where I can go somewhere work hard, do meaningful work, be a part of an organization that has a good reputation, a great work culture. All the people I've met there have been phenomenal and really make myself a part of something bigger. And I think that's like the Marine in me. Marines are all yeah. inherently pack animals, seek another pack and, and you know, kind of want to join that thing. And so I, I think I have found that, but it's entirely possible that weird things happen in the Selmore market and then I don't have a job anymore. <laughs> On the compensation front, was it yeah. in the expectation based upon your research? Was it a surprise? How good a read of you did you have going into before the offer came that this was the likely range? It was in the likely range of salary that you were going to be offered. So a couple of things. I'll answer that in three steps. It has been my experience that usually when you start the conversation, a kind of like post initial screening interview. They'll say, hey, this role has this kind of compensation range that we're thinking about. Is that okay with you? You say yes. And if you say no, the conversation is kind of over. 
And so I had been having conversations and I received some offers. I, I had offers that were below the compensation rate which I was willing to accept. And so I obviously didn't accept those offers. I had offers that were kind of in the compensation range that I thought I would end up in. And then I got the T-Mobile offer, which exceeded the compensation range that I thought I would achieve out, kind of out of the gate. I knew going in kind of what the... So, Tom, you've had some other people on that have talked about this. Compensation, the way I'm able to kind of understand it now is there's base compensation, there's frequently like a bonus structure, and then there's sometimes stock grants, and then there's like the 401k, pension, retirement. There's not a lot of pension plans out there. A couple of places still have them, like 401k type of stuff. I was thinking a lot about the base compensation because I, that's what you expect to happen. And then you work hard, and whatever happens, happens. Once you kind of get to the backside and you get like the actual employment offer and they spell it all out. And some of them have these very sophisticated workday sites where like there'll be graphs and charts and they say, this is what you, you know, and there'll be like medical stuff in there. And it's kind of like the total military compensation calculators like for the Marine Corps on Marine Online. There's many places where it's like, if you include your medical, everybody in your BAH, you actually make this much money. Only half of that is taxable income. And the numbers can get a lot higher, especially when you get to like stock grants and restricted stock options and restricted RSUs and things like that. And so that part was a surprise. How happy are you right now? I'm very happy because the people I've talked to at T-Mobile have been incredible. And I'm, and I'm excited to get to work. But part of why you want to do this interview now is because you're trying to milk my emotional states. I say, I say that as a friend. But like I described, it's like orders, right? There is an anxiety component sure. because... Like I haven't started yet, right? It's like if you PCS the weekend before you actually go and check in, right? You're making sure your uniform is ready and you're like talking to everybody that's worked at that command and you're doing all the stuff to like ensure the softest possible landing. But there's only so much you can do, yeah. right? But yeah. inside the Marine Corps, like I know the range of possible outcomes. Right. It's a limited range of possible outcomes. Right? I can go in there. Like I've always had great bosses in the Marine Corps. I, I, you know, I love the Marine Corps. But like it's possible I could have had a bad one at some point. But like, you know, if I had, like it's still the Marine Corps. Like I know what's going on. I know how the system operates. I know how the machine works. And I know where the pressure points are and how I can make stuff happen. And I know that I'm gonna go in there and get a check-in sheet and it's gonna be annoying and I'm gonna have to wander around and find like, you know, whatever I have to find and medical records and all this nonsense. I don't know any of that now, right? I guess it's, you know, I did my leader's recon the other day to find out where's the building and, uh, you know, and like drove around and like scoped it out. So I know where I'm going and I know like what the traffic flow is and when I need to get there and all that. But I was also doing it in part to like see, because one of my questions was, what's the dress code? So I wanted to see the people that are going in and out of this building. And it wasn't helpful at all. Because why right? <laughs> and I had to reach back out and ask the question. I was trying to avoid asking the questions. I didn't want, you know, like I I don't know. It's part of like just like discomfort and like you don't know what you don't know. I didn't want to send like my 20 questions before I even started, but eventually I just had to ask. Yeah. Uh, because uh, you know, you, you don't want to underdress, you also don't want to overdress. Well, man, I'm happy for you. You know, like I said, I wanted to do this now because most of the ones I've done have been case studies of things that have happened in the past. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for giving the feedback on this podcast that you found it helpful. Man, it gives guys like me hope. It really does. 
Yeah, I mean, you've had, you know, you had Captain Mike Luganon, who's been a mentor and a friend. You, you had, I mentioned Faisal and Kelly. You, you know, I think there is a network of former judge advocates who are out there, and I don't include myself in this, who are doing great things, who are creating opening doorways for people like myself that I hope to not walk through when I start this new job. And I think so. Your podcast, both you just said, gives us hope, provides tangible information, and it serves as a, as a network, as a networking reference to those that, that, are, that are coming behind us. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as of 12 days ago, we are talking to Major Thomas Eibel, United States Marine Corps, retired. And just think about <laughs> it. The only job that you've had as an adult. Yeah. And I, like I said, I love the Marine Corps. The, the Marine Corps has given me everything I have, given my children. I met my wife to the Marine Corps. I'm tremendously proud to have been a United States Marine Corps officer, uh, to have been a United States Marine but that doesn't take away from the excitement to do the next thing because everybody leaves the organization at some point. And, and the last thing I'll say is, as I was going through this process, you know, one of the things you can do on LinkedIn is you can screen for former employers. And so you can screen for former Marines in the organizations you're investigating. And so I reached out to tremendous amount of Marines in these various organizations, not just attorneys, but other people as well. And I would talk to them and like, what's it like working over there? How did you get there? Like, what did you do? And what's odd about Marines is you know that this would sometimes if I wouldn't find a marine, I would just reach out to some other veteran. But if I spoke to a marine, no matter when they got out of the Marine Corps, they always want to talk about what's going on in the Marine Corps right now, you know, with force design, all the other stuff. And so I I just think those connecting files are incredibly valuable because they were there was what keep us cohesive, what keep us together, and what create these opportunities to network and to reach out and to find new opportunities. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.